Citizen European Public Service Union podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the EPSU podcast, in which we discuss the most important global issues from the perspective of labor unions. I'm Bojan Stanislavski, and I'm joined today by Pablo Sanchez of EPSU, that is the European Public Service Union, the program's co-host. Hello, Pablo. Hello. And we've got a special guest for you, Lee Phillips. He is the author of Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts uh, and uh, the People's Republic of Walmart. And uh, he's a Jacobin Magazine contributor. Welcome to the show and thanks for joining us, Lee. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so on June 23rd, uh, Lee was uh, one of the key speakers at the APSU Public Services Conference, uh, where he discussed uh well, public services, public ownership, and public planning. So, Lee, uh, you know, you've written a lot uh, about COVID and uh, the public funding that allowed us to get vaccines at such a rapid pace. Uh, so how about we start uh, by having you elaborate a little bit on uh, why do you actually believe the public sector is so important? Within the uh, the People's Republic of Walmart, me and my co-author, Michal Wisworski, we talk about the we talked about the uh, the sort of the economic calculation debate which was this this debate that started in the 1920s but ran throughout the 20th century over uh the feasibility of 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 economic planning um and without going into sort of the the, the details of that you could boil it down to a very sort of simple rubric if you like that the set of all things that are um are profitable is uh, much smaller than the set of all things that are useful to society. And at the same time, there are a set of things that we may have realized are no longer useful uh, to society, but are still profitable. So uh, there are, I mean, I'm certainly happy that um, uh, companies like The Gap find making underwear profitable because I find that useful. But if we look at uh, in the sort of the first category, things like, um, well, public like universal provision of, of, of healthcare that's not profitable as we can see in the United States but another example of that would be uh, sort of new classes of antibiotic and we are facing a very serious um, uh, almost existential threat with respect to um, uh, running out of antibiotics that are uh, effective due to antimicrobial resistance and over the last uh, 40 years uh, clinicians, uh, public health officials, um, uh, epidemiologists, bacteriologists have said that um, one of the main problems we face here is the fact that um, for the last 40 years, uh, large, pharmaceutical large pharmaceutical companies have largely got out of the business of producing uh, new classes of antibiotic. And the reason they've done that is because it's, it's just in insufficiently profitable. Um, it is much more profitable to be producing some sort of uh, therapeutic for a uh, chronic disease, a drug that somebody has to take every day for the potentially for the rest of their life. So we have no choice but for uh, if we are going to uh, develop this this good that we know we need as a society, but isn't profitable or isn't sufficiently profitable, it has to be uh, produced uh, by the public uh, public sector. Um, on the other side of the equation, um, fossil fuels is another great example of something that we know we realize now as a society that is actually quite harmful to us with respect to 
uh, climate change, but there remains an incentive for uh, for market actors that produce uh, that commodity to continue to produce it and to lobby against any regulation that would try to phase that commodity out. <clears throat> so that's effectively the rationale for for uh, for for, uh, for the public sector for public planning, and um, I think what hopefully uh, Mihao and I um, try to get across in in the book is that. When we wrote it, um, there was a sort of, uh, at the time, there was a lot less of a discor discourse around um, uh, economic planning, um, industrial policy, innovation policy. On the left, there was a lot of activism around a range of different issues, but certainly this beating heart of the left, uh, economic planning, uh, was, was sort of absent. So that was, that was sort of idea about representing the conception of uh, the ideas of, 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 of economic planning. I gotta agree hundred uh, percent that unfortunately the left has not been, you know, focusing much on the question of economic planning, and that's why it's lacking largely an economic agenda that could confront the capitalist system today. Uh, and I think that uh, everything you said about the public services uh, it speaks a lot to the question of privatization. And I'd like to go to you, Pablo, uh, because uh, it's something that is of particular interest of the union that you represent, of the federation that you represent, and 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 yourself as well. Yeah, well, I mean, this uh, privatization has been one of the, I mean, this, after the crisis in 2008, uh, we saw a, a, a new push, uh, particularly in the countries that uh, still had a big, I'm talking about the European Union or Europe in general, the countries that still were perceived as with a too big, who judges that if it's too big or not, is another matter, but too big public sector. And we saw that there was a huge push um, by new actors, for instance, investment funds, uh, started to knock the door of sectors that before were very alien to them, like water, for instance. And that's also partly because the, in some of those public utilities that still remain under public ownership, or at least under public uh, nominal public ownership, uh, you have a, a great uh, well, incentive is that people do pay them because otherwise they don't get access to water or gas or electricity and so on. And they usually pay them monthly and they usually pay them cash. So um, what we have seen is that the capacity of the state to actually well, plan for the needs of society in terms of very basic needs such as such as uh, well, electricity needs or, or water uh, consumption are being like deployed. I mean, today, for instance, um, just to put a like very uh, close to my heart example, uh, Spain that has a totally liberalized energy market had had picked, and the Spanish energy is the most expensive uh, across the EU, more expensive, t t twice the price uh, of the megawatt per hour of the Nordic countries, more expensive than the UK, more expensive than Austria, than Belgium. I'm, I'm using those countries because the Spanish minimum wage is usually, as an average, uh, half of those countries. So what we see here is a, is a problem of uh, profiteering from, from, well, from basic needs. So and, and one of the things that we, we discuss is in order to be serious about the fight against climate change, we need uh, proper planning, at least for our scope uh, at the European level, in order to ensure that everyone has access to, to energy, 
so we don't see energy poverty. There's every year thousands of people that get cut and, and thousands of people that actually die in the summer or in the winter due to extreme weather conditions. And um, on the other side of the equation, we see the ever-growing profits of uh, the few multinational uh, companies that control the electricity market. So, Miss, not much of a, of a question, but uh, I think that the, the, the need of, of discussing this needs to be really put on the agenda because it's having a toll on the life of many working people and uh, public sector workers are really on the forefront of, of actually seeing um, this happening. All right, Lee, so uh, uh, what's your take on this? I mean, what's the role of privatization? I mean, obviously, it's a crucial one, but but uh, could you uh, tell us about, uh, you know, the balance that you observe uh, throughout your research about, uh, you know, public sector being stronger or the private sector being stronger and how it affects uh, the civilizational standard, if you like, of the, you know, functioning of a, of a population of people of a nation or a community? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the, the pandemic has really put the the problem of privatization or put another way, the sort of, as a, as a, uh, a friend of mine, a researcher, um, uh, George Hoare puts it, the deloitification of the state. And by that, he, he's referring to the sort of the, um, the takeover of many of the um, um, sort of agencies of state by major consultancies like Deloitte or McKinsey and so on and so So forth. kind of abdication of the state. The, the Absolutely, kind of... an abdication of the state, a hollowing out of the state. And um, there was a really interesting article by uh, Francis Fukuyama um, a number of months ago where he sort of made an assessment of which countries um, came out of the pandemic quite well. And what we're what we can see is, you know, it's largely it was, you know, the Taiwans, the the, the Chinas, the um, uh, the South Koreas of the world that uh, that that managed to get a good grasp on things like test and trace and and uh, managed to and build hospitals overnight and these sorts of things. Um, made they significant state capacity. That's basically it's a fancy word meaning uh, basically the ability of states to do things. And um, that it, if we look at the West, it didn't really, the countries that did better or worse didn't really map uh, to left or right very well. And that comes down to the fact that um, over the last 40 years, the, with the state being hollowed out, even when left parties come to power, uh, they aren't doing the, the, the basic work of rebuilding the state, rebuilding state capacity. They just sort of hold the line on any further privatization. And that really has a significant um, impact when it comes to something like the pandemic, because the sort of the levers of state, when a, a, a minister uh, announces a particular policy like test and trace, and uh, then, you know, there's nothing attached to that lever. Uh, nothing really happens. Um, it's it's a what I call in one of my articles a placebo state, um, and uh, you know there are a number of examples here where um, the the attempts to build uh, test and trace systems uh, would be announced by say some sort of uh, minister of state, some health minister or or prime minister or something like that, and then the the entity that actually would go out and do this is then you know Deloitte or or McKinsey and. Um, or there'll be like a, a chain of different semi-public, uh, semi-private um, actors that, uh, that do, and then in the end, uh, nothing is delivered or very little is delivered or what is delivered fails. Um, 
And uh, the, the fight on our hands right now really is uh, a revival of um, state capacity and also crucially on the left and understanding that this is what needs to be done. Not really holding the not just holding the line on privatization, but restoring state capacity. And that means that we have to educate ourselves once again about um, uh, principles of economic planning, of industrial policy, of innovation policy. And these are these are topics that aren't always quite as sexy as um, Black Lives Matter or um, indigenous struggles or um, B2. And these are all very important issues as well. The foreign policy issues, but the left really needs to get a, a grip once again on its core economic um, uh, basis, its foundation, if you will. That's right. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and also, I think that, you know, the main difference between uh, what you refer to as the Chinas, the South Koreas, the uh, other countries that you enlisted and, uh, and the other you know, strictly capitalist countries is, uh, or without the, the uh, you know, the state sector uh, developed to such an extent, is that you see, well, that's a problem with capitalism. You cannot tell a company what to do. I mean, you yeah. could try and bribe it, right? And you can, you have to throw tons of money at them and then maybe you get some lousy service. Regulate and, and them or incentivize exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah, and you have to fight for this regulation. That agency just does what you want them to do. Uh, and, and also, I, I just want to, because uh, uh, I want to refer to an anecdote. Uh, a friend of mine told me he flew uh, quite recently from New York to Bulgaria, where I was born uh, and where I've lived for uh, nearly 20 years. Uh, and uh, he said that, you know, the, the main difference in terms of COVID, because COVID is the most important uh, reference point right now, he said that you fly to Bulgaria, which is, uh, you know, after 30 years of capitalist restoration is like a third world country almost, okay, by all indicators. And, and but, but still, you go there and the entire testing uh, process takes like five minutes, 10 minutes or something. And then you have to wait, of course. Whereas he flies back to New York and it's like five hours line. And then you get right. after those five hours, you get to, uh, uh, to you know, to private testing facility where you've got people, 30 people in one, you know, small. Well, it's yeah. not it, it's not a place. It's, it's like a garage, something like this. OK, where you basically cannot you, you're risking, uh, you know, contamination with the virus by waiting to be tested, yeah. which is, yeah. you know, the, the, the kind of main difference. And, uh, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, the situation in Bulgaria, however, it is bad. It's still, you know, the remnant of the old times where the institutions were strong, where, you know, the state played a major role and so on and so forth. And where private uh, property was almost, uh, well... Uh, was pretty much eradicated, which was also, which is also a different nuance uh, the left should discuss, like to what extent do we want to sure. nationalize and what and how do we want to democratize the ownership and so on and so forth. But uh, right. So uh, let's speak about uh, the, the trade unions and labor movement in this context. <clears throat> Pablo, a question to both of you, really. Uh, what do you think the strategy Provided all that we discussed and concluded here, the strategy of the of the labor move of the institutional labor movement, the labor unions should be in this situation because obviously it's a new situation and it should give us a kind of kick, right? Like, whoa, we got to do something about it because otherwise, you know, there's going to be an next pandemic and things are literally going to collapse if if uh, no changes are made. Again, I'm landing things to European uh, sphere, but uh, there is a lot of talk at the moment about industrial policy, industrial policy, industrial policy as a, as a new thing. Um, it's interesting that this is happening now. No? Uh, for what I remember being in Brussels, industrial policy equaled in the past the internal market. No? The market would de facto by his own invisible hand, <laughs> to quote Adam Smith, 
would create national champions and it would auto-regulate and, you know, the commission would look like if there is uh, unfair competition. The, from that, the, there's been an acknowledgement that this didn't work, uh, that we needed masks from China, uh, PCR tests, from, but we basically needed everything from China, and that, that everything was basically um, called for tenders to can anyone do this. Um, now, now there is a talk about industrial policy, and, and what is worrying for us is that the public sector is nowhere to be seen. So industrial policy is basically pumping more money through tax breaks, through direct uh, investment, through just giving like money to the very ones that did not develop an industrial policy in the first instance for the last 30 years. Uh, today, um, or, or these last few days, we've seen that the commission has uh, rubber stamped the new generation EU, so the new like big lump of money to kickstart the economy. And in, in the countries that uh, are proposing, 70, 85, uh, 90% of all the money goes to a handful of actors that are already those that are not developing an industrial strategy, just, just getting the money, doing infrastructure works, and then going to the to financial market. So what is really missing is that in the industrial strategy, we see what's the role of public transport of um, the electricity sector, of uh, things that need to be brought back into public ownership in order to create this, uh, you know, this environment for new ideas, uh, for, for new developments to actually grow. Because, I mean, if you listen to like leaders in the EU, it's all startup, startup, startup. But if you actually look what startups are actually, you take Spain, the, the first 10 startups, are related to the hospitality sector. Uh, and that has nothing to do with industrial policy. It has to do with hotels and restaurants and, and summer holidays, which is what the Spanish economy has become. And it's becoming more and more the case, uh, services economy and, and, and just losing the capacity. So there is a lot of, uh, of talk about industrial uh, um, strategy, but at the end of the day, they talk about uh, spaceships without talking about the capacity to uh, fight a pandemic, which the nitty gritty of it. So this is something we are uh, also trying to raise. That is a bit of a cry in the wilderness, that the, an industrial strategy without looking at the public sector and reinforcing the public sector will again and again be pumping money to the very ones that for the last 20, 30, 40 years, they've been deploying um, productive investment to invest in the stock exchange because it's more profitable in the short term. And that's a problem. Okay, so what you're saying here is uh, that the industrial policy uh, of the unions is not developed to the extent that it can that it could face effectively the you know the, the changes in the economy and critical situations like that in, in the pandemic. And, and the yeah okay the question was really talking about governments and the problem is that the unions are very uh, reactive to what governments propose and there's very few organizations not even ourselves huh, that actually have a comprehensive alternative to the current governmental proposals for industrial strategy so we can say mm, there is no public sector in the commission's industrial strategy or we would like more public sector in the spanish government industrial strategy but at the end of the day we don't have a comprehensive view of who, who, saying 
we would like this, 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 and this, and this to be taken back in uh, like industrial uh, ministry that will actually put this through. Yeah. And, 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 and that, that, I guess, speaks to the question of the political representation of the interests of the labor movement and, you know, broader, uh, in broader terms, <clears throat> of the working class. Because this, what you're talking about is political decisions that, ha that have to be made. And, and they, they have to be made in conjunction with, you know, uh, labor movement and so on and so forth. Okay, uh, so Lee, uh, to you now, uh, how do you imagine the kind of the best three things that the labor movement could do right now if let's let's speculate what what would be the best steps if we get together all the you know the leaders of all the major international union organizations and, and we have a discussion with them what would you advise them like how should they uh, uh how should they react to uh to what's you know to what's going on around right. around us in the you know material reality so to say well, I don't know if I yeah, you know, can uh, fit it into like the top three, but what I would say is <clears throat> um, Pablo is exactly right there. That what we have to recognize is that um, we are not really in the same period, uh, any, the neoliberal period of the last 40 years. There is, has been a significant, significant ideological shift within uh, the ruling uh, elites. Um, with respect to questions around economic planning, industrial policy, um, uh, compared to the last 40 years. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those policies will be implemented in a way that is at genuinely restorative of state capacity and genuinely in, in the interest of, of ordinary people, of working people. Um, there's, you know, many people have, have said uh, that, you know, it, in, in times of crisis, uh, governments will look to whatever sort of ideas are just lying around on the ground. Um, uh, uh, and if we on the, in the labor movement don't have a set of ideas ready to go the, to, to, to implement, um, then the uh, then elites will actually still look towards non-neoliberal forms of, 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 of policy, uh, but that still maintain sort of class hierarchy, still maintain uh, that, that just don't work to restore state capacity. And so I think the number one thing that we need to be doing it, uh, in the labor movement is developing our own independent set of ideas. So Pablo is absolutely right that the, uh, we, we have to stop just being reactive to whatever government is proposing or what the private sector is proposing or the, the consultants are proposing. We need to have our own in-house set of ideas that we are proposing. And so what we would love to see with respect to restoration of, of, of state capacity and have some pretty ambitious um, um, uh, goals here, really thought through, well-developed sets of ideas and policies. And if, at that point, we if we have that set of ideas, we can then mobilize to, to push um, uh, push government to, to adopt those ideas much more easily than if all we're doing is just reacting uh, to what to attacks, else has already decided. To attacks, basically. That's yeah, that's what it exactly, boils down yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and, uh, you know, I want to go back to the uh, question of economic planning, but before I do that, I want to, you know, ask uh, about those ideas that the political establishments, political classes all over the world, or at least in the global north, they kind of develop uh, within the shift, within the ideological shift that you, uh, you know, pointed out, uh, and and that they aim to, uh, to make a slight change, but uh, not to uh, modify the core, the hierarchies, the class structure, and so on and so forth. Do you think that something like, uh, in regard to European Union, in regard to the US, uh, because you're pretty knowledgeable about both of those areas, I just want to uh, ask, 
is a, the green uh, uh, the green deal the green new deal however you want to call it is this an example of what you're talking about it could be i mean it's a it's a great um framework but of course the devil is in the details um uh yes there are uh, large areas of the clean transition that need to very large areas of the clean transition that need to occur that aren't profitable, aren't sufficiently profitable. There are a series of different technologies that um, are still at the level of pilot uh, pilot projects or even on the lab bench. <coughs> and um, we really do need industrial policy, the state to intervene, to take, the, to take those ideas from, from the lab bench or the pilot project through to commercialization. Um, I would be thinking here about things like negative emissions technologies, um, um, uh, carbon mineralization, uh, synthetic hydrocarbons. We know that we're going to be needing synthetic hydrocarbons for heavy transport, like uh, long-haul aviation and uh, long-haul shipping, because they're very hard to electrify, uh, but we can't just keep using um, uh, uh, fossil fuels uh, for obvious reasons. Um, there's no you know, electric charging station in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, so we're going to need uh, some form of um, uh, decarbonization that depends on synthetic, it's carbon neutral, synthetic hydrocarbons. And a lot of those at the moment, they're just uh, too expensive um, uh, without significant uh, uh, research, further research and development and, and, and commercialization funding uh, to de-risk uh, that innovation process for them to be viable. And there are lots and lots of other examples of, of, of this and um, just... And I would say that nuclear power is an essential part of uh, the, the the build out, and uh, because it's it's clean, but it's also firm. Unlike uh, just only depending on wind and solar, where you have to wait for the wind to blow or the sun to shine before we can turn on the ventilators in our hospitals. Unfortunately, um, um, uh, conventional nuclear power isn't very market friendly because the uh, there are enormous upfront capital costs, even though over the lifetime of uh, nuclear power plant, the, the electricity that you get out of that is incredibly cheap. France is some of the cheapest um, electricity in Europe, and it's, 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 it's largely uh, you know, nuclear dominant there. Um, so we, a, a Green New Deal should, um, is a great idea in terms of um, uh, the state building out um, those, those aspects of the clean transition, those infrastructural aspects of the clean transition, those um, you know, new technologies, the new technology aspects of the clean transition that aren't profitable or aren't insufficiently profitable. So it's a great idea. The devil is in the details in that what are the technologies that we're, we're choosing as part of that. And unfortunately, a lot of the um, the proposals from some of the green parties or green organizations um, is sort of misaligned with uh, what the what the science is showing in terms of uh, and the evidence is showing is what are truly deeply decarbonizing technologies like like nuclear, like carbon capture and storage, like synthetic hydrocarbons, um, advanced geothermal, um, these sorts, these sorts of things. So we need a sort of more socialist, a more trade union, uh, working class um, focused Green New Deal. Um, there's a you know huge body of of knowledge within uh, the working class that works within the energy sector. Um, and steering a, a away from some of what the Green parties and um, sort of environmental organizations, uh, some old thinking about, um, about industry. They're basically anti-industrial.
That's right. That's right. And it, and it's not very appealing, by the way, to people. No. <laughs> you know, it sounds. It, it oftentimes sounds like you know some some people who care about the planet they actually want a major act of some destruction, like let's destroy industry, yeah. let's destroy aviation, let's destroy this. And it's not appealing to people. And that's one of the reasons I think that why why the right wing is scoring a lot of points because oh, they kind yeah, of have a different approach. The the the, the so, line that we get from these organizations, from these green groups, <clears throat> that we have to like stop flying and aviation instead of developing um, uh, electrified aviation for short haul and synthetic carb hydrocarbons for long haul. I mean, you go and speak to any trade unionist in um, uh, 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 pilots, uh, air traffic control, uh, baggage handlers, anybody who works at an airport, um, you ask them, it, you know, um, would you like to see an end to aviation? And they're like, no, no, not at all. Or do you care about climate change? Most of them absolutely do. But they know that the, uh, the, the the technologies are available for us to deeply decarbonize aviation. The problem is that it's just very expensive at the moment uh, to take that technology and from. And that's, from. It, it, that's yeah, that's the, the point. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a very good point, I think. And what you said earlier about uh, the nuclear uh, energy not being market friendly, I think, again, it speaks to the question of planning because, you know, uh, an entrepreneur or a company or a corporation, what they're looking for is short term profit. They're not going to invest exactly. in something that's going to return uh, or that's going to pay off in 50 years or something like that. And this is, you know, this is the major problem. But at the same time, there is a lot of planning, which actually you discussed that in your most recent book. Uh, and, and there is a lot of planning. And I think we, we should be able to uh, demonstrate that, you know, what we want to build uh, an alternative system, an alternative economy is not just, you know, our dreams, but it's we are basing our, ourselves on something that already functions in the reality. And look at all those corporations, the big companies. There is no way that they would function and succeed without planning. The, the problem is that the planning is for within the company, for within the corporation, okay? And not, uh, you know, for... Uh, uh, for the consumers and for the market, for the people uh, and for the people, and so on and so forth. And we want to, you know, change that proportion. And I think this is 100%. this is something very uh, very important. And also, could you uh, could you please elaborate a little bit on on, on that? That there's a lot of uh, planning within the public uh, within the private sector, but there seems to be very little planning in terms of the public sector. And you said it yourself. Even the left doesn't really have the kind of the courage, let's say, to come up with a serious stance saying like we're going to plan it now, okay, mm -hmm. and we're going to make it rational and we're going to make it you know uh, good for the people and functional for the people and so on. Yeah, so the um, the inspiration for the People's Republic of Walmart book uh, was a sort of throwaway line from the, um, the sort of left-wing literary critic, Frederick Jameson, where he, one in one essay, he sort of, yeah, as I say, a throwaway line where he says that the left isn't properly utopian anymore. If we, um, if we want to look at an entity that is actually properly utopian these days, <clears throat> it's Walmart. Uh, the largest corporation in the world. Uh, because within it, within Walmart, there's this vast uh, amount of economic planning. Um, I mean, Walmart is, is, is not at the same uh, sort of size um, as, as the Soviet Union at, at its height, but it wasn't, it's not far off. It's sort of like that order of magnitude, really. And so uh, we wanted to use an example of the most capitalist entity that you could imagine, Walmart, to show, um, to argue against the uh, the conservative position within the economic calculation debate 
uh, against economic planning, saying that planning at this, this sheer vast, vast scale with, in, you know, uh, colossally long supply chains stretch around the world with millions of different nodes in that that supply chain and yet it works it functions um in fact it, it functions superbly well as a result of its um it's 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 logistical wonder and um so we sort of investigate that within uh within our book and not just them but also amazon and uh, the utopian aspect here is sort of taking those ideas that feasibility um of of economic planning and making it work for us um and yeah i suppose that's that's the sort of idea that yeah, and also I think it, uh, what is very important here is the question of democracy. And I'd like to first go to Pablo yes. with this because what you know, it's not the first time that we that the world, the left, uh, politicians, analysts, journalists speak about economic planning. Okay, it used to be uh, uh, pretty fashionable, even I would say, uh, like after the Second World War and before the Second World War, when you know the Soviet Union existed and and so on and so forth. Uh, but but I think that one of the reasons why uh, uh, why the Soviet model failed, and I don't want to go, you know, dive deep into that, but I just want to indicate that is that the, the lack of the uh, of the democratic, uh, you know, element in the planning. I would say that it was uh, pretty much a pretense planning. Like, for example, there would be some some five or six years plans. Uh, you know, they would be enforced on a factory or a sector, and then the workers and the managers of those factories they wouldn't even. Uh, think of actually realizing those plans because they know they knew that the ne next year uh, more work would come, more workload in, in the next plan, and so on and so forth. And, and and the people had no say, and the consumers had no say. Okay, it was only indicators, resources, uh, usage of resources, and so on and so forth. And I think it's very important for us while we're uh, we should build on the kind of planning level of planning that already exists within the international economy. I think it's very important uh, for us to also take into consideration. Uh, the question of democratization of that planning and democratization of that uh, 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 particular enterprise or the ownership in general. Okay, so uh, I I think that the labor unions they could play a, a huge role in this even today by attracting you know consumer organizations and work together with them uh, and, and and implementing or developing or contemplating policies. What do you think about that, Paul? <coughs> Yeah, but the first react, the reflection is to lead to say, when is the People's Republic of Amazon coming out? Because no, that's true. That's a good question. <laughs> that would good be a, another example of how they um, have been extremely aggressive, but also they've, they've planned operations and now they do, um, they have solar panels and they, they, they look as like how we're going to make it cheaper, which uh, using all sorts of, of, of mechanisms which you could basically uh, theoretically take over and say how are you going to make it more social or how are you going to make it uh, for the benefit of absolutely the whole of the humanity. But yes, this, this, this planning uh, element is, is, is really nowhere in the debate uh, of, of most uh, trade union organizations. And in other podcasts, we've, we've discussed about... Uh, uh, an element of coming out of 40 years of being hammered down by what we can call neoliberalism. Uh, and I think there is a bit of that. There is a bit of like, um, this This might be a bit brutal as a metaphor, but like people trying to keep the, the, the light alive 
uh, of the old fire and hoping someone else will come with uh, new forces and strength uh, so the fire is not extinguished. Um, just thinking of a film of Jean-Jacques Cano called In the Search of Fire, where the tribe keeps uh, trying to keep the fire alive when there is an earth and, and, and another uh, a prehistoric man that, woman actually that arrives and that's fire for them. Um, and I think it's an extremely good metaphor of what's the situation like. We're trying to keep things alive and kicking, where in reality what is needed is to look forward. And, 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 and this is not one against the other. It's something that needs to go hand in hand. Because at the moment, this debate is, well, partly this podcast is trying to, well, generate open minds, throw uh, into the discussions uh, books and authors that are probably, well, less known and, and, and help um, open windows of a debate about planning, about public ownership, about public services, about things that might have been more popular in the past, but they are uh, less loud now. So that that's what I would say. This is this is uh, we're uh, icebreakers here at the at this stage. Okay. Uh, so Lee, what is your take on the importance of the question of democracy here? So that you know, while we're uh, nationalizing, taking over, planning, uh, you know, uh, transgressing ownership and so on and so forth, so that we don't end up again in well war communism institutionalized, which yeah. was pretty much what the Soviet Union represents. So. Uh, this is absolutely essential that what we're talking about is democratic economic planning, not authoritarian economic planning. And the uh, the problem with the the a lot of the discourse around the Soviet Union with respect to the question of economic planning is that conservative economists and conservative political figures will make the argument that the um, that economic planning is fundamentally uh, infeasible. In that there are some once you get beyond a particular size that uh, there's simply too many variables within the supply chain. Um, uh, humans can't calculate that. The human bureaucrats can't calculate that that uh, that volume. Um, uh, it, 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 we, we can't do it with computers. Um, it, uh, ultimately, there will be a mismatch between supply and demand. That uh, that mismatch between su supply and demand will create vast shortages um, in some areas and oversupply in other areas. And that uh, that that the chaos, uh, the economic chaos resulting from that will result in the emergence of authoritarianism and bada bing, bada boom, you have the Soviet Union, you have Stalinism. It's actually sort of the other way around. If you look at the actual historical experience of the Soviet Union and other Stalinist um, economies, that the authoritarianism, the lack of democracy is what undermined the information in the system. The so you you are, let's say you're some sort of a figure at a, at a factory that is in charge of calculating what has been produced. If you have underproduced, you are scared of being killed or sent to the gulag if you report that you haven't produced that. So <clears throat> um, the, uh, the fidelity of um, uh, the information, the information in the system to what is actually happening on the ground is uh, deteriorates as a result of that authoritarianism, of that, that fear of being sent to the gulag. Um, so uh, theoretically, if you have democratic economic planning, you should have a much uh, the, the information within the system should have a much greater fidelity to the, uh, to the reality on the ground. Um, it is is not merely we'd like uh, uh, economic planning plus we want democracy. It actually economic planning doesn't work without um, doesn't properly work without democracy. 
So in 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 a real sense, there there is no way that what we're talking about here is some sort of return to the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, but I I just used it as a as an example oh, and, yeah. and as no, a reference I'm point because for sure. Yeah, because you know my feeling is, and of course you know I'm I'm in Eastern Europe, okay, so uh, it could be uh, it doesn't have to be the same in Western Europe or, or or all the more in the United States, but there are many references drawn here. Uh, by the left, uh, by left activists, left journalists, uh, the kind of nostalgic ones about, uh, you know, the f uh, how things used to be in the former Eastern Bloc and so on and so forth. But then there are those who either criticize it or, or they, uh, because of the lack of democracy, and there, there, are, there are those who just uh, praise all those good things that did happen and the kind of, you know, uh, civilization uplift that did occur, okay, throughout the region. But then, you know, I, I feel that there is very little, or there has been over the last three decades, really, there has been very little effort on the part of the, of the left globally to actually investigate what was wrong and what was good. And what was the same? The same goes for the social democracy, by the way, Western social yeah. democracy. Again, very little investigation, very little looking back at what what, what did we do well, what and where did we fail, actually. So that's why I think it's uh, kind of important to have this, you know, uh, perspective, historical perspective. Uh, and that's why I, I brought the question of the Soviet Union in. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it is, it's an essential question because um, whenever we bring back up the question of economic planning. Um, the the right will always beat us over the head with oh well you're just talking about the Soviet Union say like, no 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 we're not at all uh, there are lots of examples of economic planning already in the world both within the private sector and in the public sector the the British uh, National Health Service is perhaps the sort of no plus ultra example of a of a socialized healthcare system where it's not merely the state that is paying um, um, for uh, public healthcare but actually the hospitals are owned by the state although of course over the last you know, 20, 30 years, there's been a great deal of uh, deterioration of, of, of state capacity there as well. Um, but so we have to absolutely stress that what we're talking about is democratic economic planning, not authoritarian economic planning. Um, and I mean, I'm a democratic socialist. I um, fundamentally, I, I totally oppose to the, you know, the horrific, um, um, uh, you know, atrocities that happened under Stalin. Um, I, I, socialism is by definition extension of democracy from politics to the entirety of the economy. So if, if, the, if the Soviet Union isn't democratic, then as far as I'm concerned, it's not socialist. Okay, uh, so uh, guys, it's time for some closing remarks. And uh, I think that, you know, the question of planning and the question of the public sector, this is uh, absolutely, you know, the crucial topic today. And I think it's going to be present uh, in the general discourse, you know, to use that word. Uh, and uh, I think it's important for us to have some discourse, you know, approaches, techniques, <laughs> if you like. Uh, and and uh, I, I think that it makes sense for, you know, union leaders to uh, come together and discuss how do they want to present, what kind of position do they want to put forward and how do they want to present it in order to make an impact on the uh, on that discourse. So, uh, Pablo, how do you think that uh, this process has begun of this kind of thinking and <coughs> conceptualization of some ideas and stances and positions that uh, unions uh, could put forward and, and, and stand by. Well, hopefully it has begun now and there'll be thousands of listeners and <laughs> it will 
basically be kickstarted. But uh, I, I think it is important um, when a city, a region, a municipality has to deal with kindergarten, primary education, secondary education, that you can actually know how many people there are. There is, you have in well-developed countries, rich countries, uh, countries in the top 20, 20, top 30 of the classification of wealth, where people are queuing outside because they don't know if they will have a place for a kindergarten. Um, well, nine months before, uh, they knew that the kid was going to be born. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy planning, if, if you want. Uh, and there's, this is kind of examples is that what we need to put forward to say we need, uh, we need public ownership in order to be able to plan for society. Um, and it's not like a mantra. It's a matter of actually making more efficient um, for absolutely everyone and to give opportunities to all. So I hope that this uh, series of podcasts and, and, and these debates and these discussions help to have a different take about what's the role of public services and, and, and how unions can actually participate in this process of, of new democratic planning, if, if we want to call it like that. Okay, Lee, so to you now for your closing remarks. Uh, how do you think the labor movement could effectively intervene within the discussions, debates that are already actually occurring, but that, you know, more, that will be opening up more broadly probably in the near future? I think I would just repeat what I had said a few minutes ago about how the labor movement needs to come up with its own independent set of ideas with respect to economic planning, industrial policy, um, uh, uh, innovation policy, technology policy. Uh, don't wait for uh, small green NGOs to come up with conceptions of a Green New Deal. Come up with their own independent uh, strategies for uh, a just transition, for a clean transition. The the vast the colossal, surely, you know, truly colossal amount of clean energy infrastructure um, that needs to be built out um, uh, that, and, and that requires um, public investment, uh, economic planning. Um, I, I would say that the trade union movement is is the perfect vehicle for a proper conversation about that rather than leaving it to uh, journalists and academics and NGOs that are cut off from that sort of engineering discipline that know how of how energy systems work. Um, yeah, I think fundamentally the, uh, the, the, uh, the need is for the, the, the trade union movement to come up with its own independent uh, set of proposals for society um, along these lines. So it needs to grow an ideological and political backbone, is that what you're saying, basically? Well, certainly, but I would just say an independent set of ideas rather than reacting to other people's ideas. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you both for uh, uh, for being on uh, today's show. It was a very insightful and interesting conversation. I think I definitely hope our viewers uh, also find it uh, interesting. And uh, <clears throat> see you all on the next edition of our EPSU podcast. Stay healthy. Keep fighting. See you later. Thank you. Bye. Glad to be here.